1: Hello, welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Spencer Clavin, who is an associate editor at the Claremont Institute and a features editor at the American Mind, as well as the host of the Young Heretics podcast. In this conversation, we speak about his forthcoming book on science and religion, and we get into the nitty gritty of the interaction between faith and truth and scientific discovery. And we get into spirituality and wisdom. And Spencer brings a lot of knowledge as well as vulnerability to the table. If you are fond of him, do follow his work, which will be linked down in the description. Without further ado, here is Spencer Clavin. Ben. Spencer. Hello. You've got a at new this. backdrop last Yeah, I moved. I had a okay. big shake up in my life. Really? Yeah. And, and plus I wanted to compete with you on the book shelving, but my my shelving's not quite, quite as complete as yours. But
0: Well, it's a it's a solid foundation. It's the credibility <laughs> shelf, you know? Yeah, you just right? Gotta...
1: <laughs> Look how interesting I could be. <laughs> yeah.
0: If i had read these books i bet i'd know a lot <laughs> i wouldn't think we're about how great that would be
1: wouldn't that be great how oh, you been man. Good oh summer? very
0: well thanks yeah yeah really really pleasant um we've done a lot of traveling it was josh's birthday not long ago so we went to uh wine country oh Napa, some of his favorite spots yeah yeah you know we actually he's particularly attached to this spot just south of napa called los olivos so that's where we hung out, but we did go to Napa earlier in the summer. Actually, we've been doing a lot of a lot of wine travel.
1: Are you somewhat of a sommelier?
0: <laughs> I am the opposite of a sommelier. I genuinely, if the world depended on my distinguishing between like pencil shavings in a Pinot Noir and horse manure in a Riesling, we would all be be dead. But. um <laughs> But Josh not only is very involved with wine, he actually just this weekend took the class to become like the first level of SOM or whatever. So he's really making a whole hobby out of it. I have this kind of far-fetched fantasy that I'm sort of convinced that he's going to want to retire and start a little winery and that I'm just going to live in the attic of the winery typing away and that will be our retirement. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Mm What about you? Are you a, uh, Oh me? Yeah. 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 Uh, mm, Beer. I don't really know my wines. I, my, one of my best friends made wine for about 10 years or so. It was fun to participate in that. He had a kind of a winery in Portland, Oregon. And cool. He'd do the things with the thing, you know, he had all the equipment (laughs) and stuff. It was kind of a fun project, but, um, yeah. Interesting. We did cider one year, which was pretty fun. I'm going to try to do cider this year. I have an apple tree that's just like plopping down apples, so I'm going to try to make a gallon of hard cider. shouldn't be that hard. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's more my speed as
0: well. I The only alcohol I know anything about is whiskey, and I definitely will. Yeah, you
1: have know. you distilled? Are you allowed to in your state?
0: I don't think I am. I've never tried in Tennessee... We briefly tried in California, but with to no avail. Um, but my what do you mean to no my, avail. Did
1: you not have the right temperature? Oh no, uh, we still? just were
0: too lazy. Basically, oh. that, that's not like, <laughs> I, I make it sound as if we were thwarted by yeah some by kind,
1: tried some tried. You meant <laughs> you didn't try to, to any avail? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We
0: were we were thwarted by our own pure indolence hmm. and yeah um it's i guess um well the so when i finished my doctorate i went to scotland for a week and just spent a very memorable you know series of days wandering from distillery to distillery with my Hmm. best friend from that whole time but i've never really made made much of a thing of it yeah I'm, i'm kind of bad at hobbies because i i fill up my free time with basically more work. Like that's just I, my my work is my hmm. is my hobby a little bit.
1: What what have what's been what's on your like horizon? What are you what are you trying to accomplish like I guess within the next six months or this year or so?
0: Yeah. Um I am working on a new book. It's about the history of science, but it is a theological history of science. So oh. it's about the um kind of entrance and exits of god from the mind of the scientist kind of starts with the greeks and ends up with the quantum physicists and um that's been very engrossing for me Uh, it's something that you know i hope when it takes shape it will have a certain kind of easy reading appeal but to talk about it sounds very kind of heady and uh, uh, obscure um but it's a lot i mean it means a lot of reading basically and then i i've been Turning out about a chapter a week, my deadline with my publisher is in December, and that's been my real kind of focus the whole year,
1: basically. Mm-hmm. And this is so I guess since it's a historical kind of narrative, you get to that, thats your structure—is history, how like a history of ideas, kind of.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's a little unorthodox in that the first it's it's ten chapters, the first seven of which are a, are a history of ideas. And then I actually, this may not be that unorthodox, but after that, just telling that story as best I can, I kind of transitioned to some more reflective essays on, you know, where, where the whole journey has brought us hmm. thus far. Because my kind of my, my opening gambit or my premise is that we have a kind of mythology around science about ourselves and what the world is made of and kind of how we understand ourselves in the world. But that that mythology hasn't quite caught up to actual science that we have. We still have a very kind of 18th century mechanical universe picture of like molecules in a void. And that's not actually been what scientists think for a long time. And there's kind of interesting repercussions, I think, if you if you take quantum physics and you try to kind of edit your scientific mythology with with some of the latest Mm -hmm. uh, developments there. So that's that's the book.
1: I guess to the same question asked two different ways. Big question. I don't expect you to have uh, the answer. But what does science tell us about God or what does God tell us about science? How do those two ideas unlock each other, support each other, um, or take away from each other?
0: Yeah, well, I guess to take the second no the first question first what, is, what does science tell us about god i guess the canonical traditional answer for many of the architects of the scientific revolution is that science reveals god's handiwork um, you know it, it was the idea that science is a kind of hostile uh, anti-god uh, project became so stuck in kind of the 19th century imagination That it's very difficult sometimes, I think, for us to recover the very real way in which Newton, Kepler, even even Galileo understood themselves to be unveiling a kind of cosmic order. That the reason they expected mathematics to do so much and to describe and predict so much is because, as Kepler famously said, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. And there's any number of kind of scriptural citations you can adduce to this effect. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 23. I can't remember, it might be 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, you know, is the, the firmament and the, the, you know, movements of the astrological bodies. These are all kind of outward physical signs of an intangible, invisible cosmic order. Yeah. And so I guess the second part of your question is really answered by saying, you know, when that was lost, uh, as, it, as it really was in the um, 18th and 19th centuries, um, at first it seemed as if science was being liberated from a kind of prescriptive theological casing. Um famously, Pierre Simon Laplace, who was Newton's greatest interpreter in, in France, said to Napoleon, when Napoleon asked him, where's God and all your mathematics, he said, I, I, I have no need of that hypothesis. And that was really the first grand declaration that science had broken free of this kind of, um, you know, restrictive, divine uh, mythology and was now standing on its own two legs and could kick out the stool from underneath it. And one way I would answer your question about what God tells us about science is that that uh, optimism has proven really ill founded. And that the more you proceed in science without a kind of conviction that you're uncovering the workings of a mind, the less stuff starts to make sense. And it's, it's when you eject that presupposition that, for instance, you end up inventing things like multiverse theory to account for things like the fine tuning constants. Um, this is a kind of famous paradox that emerges that many of the mathematical constants that seem to govern the fundamental laws of the universe are within very, very small ranges, that they, the only ranges that they can be in to support conscious life. And there are a number of possible explanations for this, many of which are theological, but one of which is kind of the multiverse, that like we just happen to be in a universe that was coughed up by a universe-producing machine. Um, and really what you have when you're in that kind of debate is you're up against the kinds of science depending on answers to the kinds of questions that science can't answer because multiverse questions deal with things we can't observe things that are fundamentally by definition outside the range of our experimental Mm -hmm. access um and so one way of understanding what god can tell us about science is to say presuming god um is one among a range of frameworks that one can apply to science in order to understand what it says. It's impossible to do science without some such framework. And God is actually the soundest and most realistic framework uh, that kind of preserves common sense intuition while also al- allowing for the revelations of things like quantum physics.
1: And this it loops back to the first question then. Hmm. Insofar as if if God is necessary as a concept in order for science to continue to make sense or for the uncovering of order to proceed, then God then starts to take on a shape or at least the order that God imposes. So God is what, like rational God uh, is, uh, you know, right. So what does it then mm. presuppose about God that when we start to uncover order, we see a pattern to things what does that tell us uh, again about God, that God is what order, uh, like right? So we can fine tune even the definition of God by, by ascribing to God certain qualities.
0: Right. Great. Right. This is a really good point. And you, you put me in mind of uh, St. Augustine, who talks about the book of nature and the book of scripture. Mm. And this is an mm. even earlier way of talking about, you know, theology and science before you know, science of the kind that we would recognize has come into being. Um, Augustine is convinced, in fact, proceeds from the assumption that these two books don't ha- contain the same information, but the information that they do contain harmonizes. And so we can use them as checks uh, against one another or, you know, when there are ambiguities in one, those they can be resolved by the other. And so certainly the quality of being rational or um, proceeding rationally is, I think, can be ascribed to God more readily from the book of nature than from the book of scripture. There are many things about, I think, the way that God behaves in scripture that could be described as mysterious, that certainly uh, have roots and origins beyond the kind of rational framework that we can see or impose. But because as humans, we have this thing called reason, because we discern it to really exhibit a shocking kind of isomorphism with God's created universe. That is that the the structures which our minds depend on to proceed find remarkable answers in the predictions that we're able to derive, say, about the motions of planets. Um, We can at least assume or we can say of God, right, that he has... And that he is the ground of reason that within him reason operates and that the way that he operates at least by and large is answerable to the propositions of reason um that's one thing another thing we might say about god on the basis of science is that he takes an intimate he, he places a certain importance on human perception and and human experience and um, this was a this is a more controversial thing that has only emerged i think in the wake of the quantum revolution but you know when niels bohr and schrodinger and einstein get to arguing over what the heck it means that certain kind of structural limits within the mathematical apparatus we use to calculate motion and um, those limits uh, seem kind of insurmountable and baked into the the functional kind of apparatus of any experiment that nailing down the velocity of a particle imposes a kind of indeterminacy on what we know about um, its position. For instance, mm-hmm. um, it, there is there then emerges this kind of um, debate, which is still raging about, you know, what does that say about the universe when we can't measure it, when we can't observe it, and are there qualities of the universe outside forever outside of our perception? um which have a kind of indeterm- just an indeterminacy to them that our perception is a kind of in- fundamental ingredient in the everyday intuitions about like things moving through space and just being objects and having I- existence hmm. and the kind of Bohr, the Niels Bohr approach to this is uh, yes absolutely our math is about us it's about our experiences it's about the things that we encounter in the world and it was always a kind of pipe dream that it would then neatly apply in exactly the same way to things that we are fundamentally incapable of experiencing qualitatively. Um, and this kind of shatters the you know, Galilean premises of the scientific revolution and causes all this trouble for people like Einstein. But for a Christian, it's actually quite comfortable, I think, to live in that. Uh, space and say yeah the earth was formless and void until there was light and that a perceiving mind is actually an inextricable ingredient in the world as we talk about it Mm. um and so one thing we learn about from that is like what it means when the bible says that we are made in the image of god right this very kind of ambiguous and and um almost gnomic pronouncement in Hebrew scripture um takes on really particular and specific and definite characteristics if the way in which we are in God's image is that as uh, as as conscious minds, we are co-creators of reality as it appears to us, the world mm-hmm. as we know it. um. Why would God invite Adam to name the animals? Well, perhaps because by our kind of conscious, self-aware use of language, we're finalizing a process that begins in, in creation. And all of these things, I think, you know, in, in that way, I guess it, it's fair to say that like scripture and science flesh one another out and give content to statements that otherwise are kind of empty or open. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, there's, uh, there's a tension. There's always a tension. Um, Whenever you bring up theology, Hebrew mm. theology, Christian theology, where we are made in the image of God is like this core insight or what you call a gnomic statement. We are made in the image of God, um, which can lead one to presume a hubris and a, a God relies on us, right, uh, to see himself or that the world relies on us to see it um, through, through ourselves. We're, we're blessed with some sort of divine power. But the, the contradiction is uh, embedded within the Hebrew Bible of showing just how unworthy or broken or mistaken human beings are. So they're made in the image of God. But if, if that's so, why are they always... Screwing up, right? Like, like Mm -hmm. packaged with that proudful kind of like pride-inducing statement of being made in the image of God is a history of humility, a history of humiliation, perhaps. Um, Mm. Yeah, you know the kind of,
0: to me, rather dry but appropriate theological term that you're approaching would be the tension between a high and a low anthropology in in theology that. The high anthropology would say, well, mankind is endowed with, you know, this kind of divine dignity. And and God has this almost (laughs) to us sort of perplexing degree of care about each human life. And why should he? After all, he has better things to do, surely. On the other hand, the low anthropology would say, yes, but we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And as you say, we keep messing up, we keep sucking. from from Eden, from the start, you know, there's there's just it's clear, at least from Cain and Abel, and probably from Eden, that we're that we're disobedient in some way. Um, and the psalm that comes to mind to kind of capture this, um, just to show that the tension you're observing is not lost on the biblical authors. Um, in Psalm eight, there is a famous passage that I think inspires one of uh, Hamlet's soliloquies in in Shakespeare's Hamlet um what is man that thou art mindful of him and yet thou hast made him but a little lower than the angels and and the Hebrew there is actually me'at me'elohim which means a little less than the gods um the one of the kind of more foreign assumptions to us of, of Hebrew scripture is that there are many um Gods in the small g sense—that is, there are many powers and supernatural entities that are above us on the spiritual hierarchy, Hmm. and they might be angels, they might be demons, any number of things. Um, But there is only one true ruler of the world; that is one God who can claim to be Lord. Um, So that's kind of how, at least some of the Hebrew scriptures approach this, and we then are like on that hierarchy—we're just like one rung down from the angels. Hmm. And you know, I have a way of thinking about this, which is. You know, I would would never ascribe this to any particular school of thought or, you know, saddle anybody else with this approach to the issue. But, you know, John Milton, when he talks about Satan approaching Earth to uh, get ready to tempt Adam and Eve, um, he takes Satan on this whole journey up from hell through chaos, past chaos into nature. And he can see heaven far off, but he's just approached the Earth. And when it comes time to finally describe the Earth, Milton says, and fast by hanging in a golden chain, this pendant world in bigness as a star of smallest magnitude close by the moon and that image of the pendant world, right, the world that is kind of hanging at the inflection point between order and chaos um, gets at one kind of Christian way of understanding why it is that we're so elevated and yet so abased. um, Because we're kind of the first, if you imagine the hierarchy of existence extending down into kind of unformed matter and all the way up through the animals with souls and then finally all the way up to the Elohim, to the angels, to these kind of beings of pure rationality and spirit. um, It's at that inflection point of man that full self-aware, self-conscious rationality enters into matter for the first time along the mm-hmm. hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is an unbridgeable gap in kind between us and everything below us in that way, that we are the embodiment of a kind of divine principle that below us on the hierarchy doesn't find full expression. But precisely because we're so close to everything that is unformed and everything that is um kind of fleshly and uh, and not not just made of flesh but merely kind of appetitive um for that reason we are susceptible weak and and frail um and it's god's greatest miracle to draw out of that frail uh, material something that could bear his image that's why you know he has chosen the weak to shame the proud out of the mouths of the very babes hath he founded strength that's another line from psalm 8. um that's why all of this imagery kind of depicts us as um, god 's biggest parlor trick, like mm-hmm. that even at the very threshold of mere nature, uh, the divine is capable of dwelling
1: hmm. beautifully put thank you to switch gears a little bit um, there 's this whole theory of evolution by this guy named Charles Darwin. And that was another, yes, that was another tenuous uh, or or a cause for tension between the science sort and the theologic sort. And there's probably like a lot of different arguments to be had and, and a lot of things on the line and a lot of, you know, pride or, uh, inability to communicate or to harmonize, um, those two, that those two books, let's say of nature and of scripture. Um, but uh, to fast forward a little bit, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, uh, The Selfish Gene, and, and I ingested it a few years ago. And it was really a terrible vision of the world where he kind of lays out kind of a mythology of evolution by walking you through, walking us the reader through kind of the story of like, there was just this beach somewhere where clay folded over on itself and started to replicate itself. And the whole book is called the selfish gene. So he presents this image of everything in nature um, that's above matter is just this kind of accidental self perpetuating, like mobile that's just spinning. And it's Mm -hmm. very, what's so terrible to me not only is it so vast when you start to look at just how complex the world is, and how many how many calculations are Im- imbued in all of nature, like, and you don't really see that until you start to think about it and try to use your mind to think about that. But just the concept that there's no per- that this is all just a machine, this soulless machine, and so to try to have that understanding of that accidental nature of the procession of the species, let's say, without some sort of spiritual content it's it's just it's it's just going because it's going there's no real content to it that's what Mm -hmm. makes me seek some sort of divine um i I start to grasp for the divine i start to grasp for the spiritual world because it's such a terrible vision and it just doesn't seem true to me that this is Mm. just mechanistic that i'm just mechanistic And, and you know an evolutionist would say you're just tricking yourself that you have a will. It's just part of your self-replicating programming that you think you have free will, that you think you have a soul, because that ensures that there's purpose to life. And without that, you wouldn't reproduce. So, of course, that makes sense, like in kind of like that explanatory way of undoing the mythology of man. I'm wondering in your research and your thoughts on this, what that brings up and, and that whole topic, that tension.
0: So much. There's so much there, Ben. And it's, it's you, you posed the question well. Um, I think there are, is a really telling passage in the selfish gene. And it's where Dawkins addresses the very question, whether the selfishness of our genes, that is their kind of raw impulse to replicate, which is not glossed by any sort of conscious intent as exactly as you say, but simply occurs. Um, And once you you know, you're right to describe the horror of it because it we can kind of get very fuzzy in our thinking when we start to talk this way. And we imagine that we can still kind of attribute consciousness to a world that is in mechanical motion. Um, But when you really kind of get right down to what is implied here, it is like staring into the void it's a kind of seer wasteland that you have these unthinking particles in motion and they are governed by certain laws which are nothing other than the mere fact of themselves they don't express any intent they are simply a way for us of describing the patterns that repeat and repeat and replication successful replication survives that's kind of the dawkins rule of all things cultures monuments life and also physical particles and and genes and there's a moment in which he says so does this mean that our altruistic impulses our aspirations to moral virtue are uh, unfounded because they don't describe any law of nature my desire to share something with a homeless guy on the street if i feel some inclination to do that there's really nothing i mean you can you can make up a just so story about why um you know why my genes might kind of include a a directive to uh for toward altruism whatever yeah, whatever yeah. um but these are to me these are these are unsatisfying answers because they explain everything you can come up with one to explain everything away and still it doesn't strike me as true as you say that everything can be boiled down to this, and Dawkins really to me gives the whole game away when he says, you know just because our genes are selfish doesn't mean that we should be. And isn't it wonderful that we have evolved this new mode of going against our genetic programming in some cases to pursue higher callings like altruism and virtue. But hold on, higher in what sense? According to what, right? Where do you get your idea of virtue and and goodness? Um, And if you really press on these evolutionary structures, these structures of thought that reduce all things to evolution as explained at the genetic level, um, you will, I think, kind of universally exclusively find that smuggled in somewhere is a notion of the good that would be good even if it weren't evolutionarily sound. So let's now imagine a world where it just is bad for me evolutionarily to um, feed my family or to perform acts of charity. Um, can the hardline evolutionists really say with confidence that because it's bad for the survival of the species, I shouldn't do it? And most respectable, likable, clubbable evolutionists will find some, will desperately seek some work around for it because otherwise the idea of evolution as a full-fledged description of us reveals itself for the kind of nightmare vision that it is. Mm. None of this, I don't think, needs to be taken as a refutation or even an attempt at a refutation of the theory of the origin of species, either evolution within species or between species. I am not the scientist who will be able to settle that debate at a kind of data level. And whereas it interests me, I am not troubled or perturbed by the truth of or lack of truth of evolutionary theory. Um, what does concern me is that there should be some ground for our moral intuitions over and above our biological impulses. And when an evolutionist says to you or me, "Well, that's merely a hallucination, kind of accidental byproduct or survival mechanism generated by your by your body, by your biology," so you only think you have desires or love or memories or dreams, you are being deceived. My question is who? Who is being deceived? Oh, yeah. What, what is the entity that you're referring to um, as, the, as the subject of that deception? And, and the minute you ask that question, you realize that something other than mere mechanical processes must be at work in the human person, if there is any such thing as a human person at all. And I know there is because I am one. Hmm. So all of this is to say, It's perfectly plausible to me and totally consistent with what scripture describes if God over many millions of years forms what what looks to us like many millions of years forms this thinking self-conscious entity with discernible roots in the biological history of the world. It's also true that given everything we've just said about quantum physics, um, that that whole history, those whole millions of years, quote unquote, before us. Um, only really count as years, can only really be described as history once there is a human consciousness to describe them as such. And so it still could be the case that within seven days, according to God's perception, there was a creation that was suddenly able to co-create with him. And that in that moment, millions and millions of years of evolutionary history came fo- fully and finally into being that did not previously exist. That's totally, totally possible to, yeah. to think about. Um, and so none of this is it, to me contradictory in fact, it's very beautiful and and ennobling um but the fiction that uh, it's kind of boils down to a Little bucket of, of Lego pieces just, just doesn't wash for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's another aspect of, well, so hidden in the question, what does science tell us about God? What does God tell us about science? Is the us. Like that's the real thing that's being, that can only ever actually be fleshed out and grasped at mm. tentatively and only in dialogue with one another and only after lives lived, books written, um, experiments taken, uh, failures lived through or succumbed to. Um, does the human being come to light? Um, and one thing about us is that, especially with science, science has an explanatory power, um, and and it's got and that within that power is this mirage of of power of of like we, if I can explain things, then I have power over it. And so you see over and over again, like with with any given theory or with any given subject or discipline. Any given scientist, any given philosopher, or professor is always going to say that this this thing explains everything. This evolution can explain everything. Math can explain everything. Even even the Bible can explain everything. And only in dialogue with all these different disciplines, some somehow like a re, through a Renaissance man, through humility, through mutual um, activity and dialogue, does emerge some fuller notion of the truth. And also, and that's just a statement, I want to pivot into a question, like with evolution, and in my studies with um, the, what's, what's called gender ideology, or the the transgender movement where we have science um, kind of meddling with the human body. Um, We have psychologists being taken by this idea of gender as some sort of concrete or more than concrete reality of the human being that, that the body should be brought into line with rather than the spirit brought in line with the body. You, You see the glimmer of, of this hubris of man to, to, to take an explanatory theory and then to, over rely on that and lose lose his way with that um so in the history of science have you seen that pop up over and over again where we're at every stage even people think that they're at the summit and then they can they can be the what archimedean point where this one theory can can move the heavens i i and and what what is like if in thinking about that is there a pattern of rise and fall from that hubristic explanatory fervor Um, Hmm. that kind of sweeps through people historically.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be Newton's laws, right? And before that, it was supposed to be any number of other, I mean, medieval, it was supposed to be scholastic theology before Galileo and some of his contemporaries came along and messed it up. And to me, what this signals is that the true state of our knowledge is always bounded by the remits of our human experience at our present stage of Evolution and one of the most interesting things mm-hmm. to me about scientific re- successive scientific revolutions is that the mathematical rules that any given revolution depends on—Newtonian mechanics, um, Einstein's relativity, uh, it, before that, again, the kind of system of physical explanations that arose out of Aristotle during the medieval scholastic era—they all are valid, roughly valid for the range of experiences that the people drawing them up was able to have and it's only at the limits or the edges of those experiences that they start to break down i mean the the clearest kind of instance of this is when you get into einstein's relativity and he starts talking about how we would know whether space was uh geometrical in the kind of you know newtonian cartesian grid three dimensions kind of uh, at, at parallel angles to each other or whether it was somehow spherical in in a kind of four-dimensional sense um and one thing he points out is that if you take that question from a 2d perspective and you imagine two-dimensional creatures on a sort of two-dimensional plane um and and you say that actually their plane far out far enough out their plane starts to curve in on itself and becomes a sphere. Um, they wouldn't know that until they got sufficiently far away from the descent from their origin point that the bend or the curve started to become apparent. Hmm. And Einstein says quite rightly that this is why the greatest legacy for any scientific theory is to become a kind of premise or edge case or um, approximation. For some larger theory that that describes more of of the world, um, huh. and it's probably inevitable in just the human heart, I suppose, to become a monomaniac about your explanatory theory and to get addicted idolize to it. extrapolation. Yeah, yeah, idolize is great to, to idolize your your extrapolations of the rules that. Accurately describe your present experience. Um, And this, again, to beat my particular hobby horse, you know, this is, I think, a confusion about what the primary object of our attention is. Um, For the for the idolater of an explanatory theory, the object of attention is what's, quote, unquote, behind human perception and experience. And so your mathematics should describe a kind of, quote, unquote, real world um, that is is veiled and masked by the everyday experience of human life. Um for, for me, the realist thing, the bedrock, is the world as we experience it. And the theories that we develop are a kind of architecture that we layer on top to describe the world and to give order to the world as we experience it. Hmm. All of that having been been said, though, um, you know, one thought that kind of comes to mind about this, you know, monomaniacal urge to you know reduce everything to your kind of one explanation your 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 monocausal theory um is that it, it's a way of the mind wanting to encapsulate the world to kind of take the whole world inside of itself yeah and the kind of i i guess the humility of of faith is to say that the world is encompassed within a mind, but it's not yours. And your mind is encompassed within the world. And so you're always, there's always more of that for you to discover because God is infinite and it's his mind that, that holds the world in, in its cradle.
1: How does, how does faith or your particular faith or your relationship to your particular faith, which would be your belief, act as a guide point or an unveiling tool? Because you, you said, you said, I'm plugging it out of context. So I'm sure you didn't mean it definitively that the only thing that's real is life as you lived it. But if, if that's so, then you wouldn't have that spiritual, you, you still believe in the invisible world. You still communicate with that through literature, through art, through, through the practice of theology, the practice of reading, the practice of, I would assume worship. I, I assume that you're not just a scholastic. I'm assuming that you put that into practice. Um, how, what's the relationship between the visible world, the lived experience and that, subtle realm definitely well i would say two things one
0: to clarify when i say the world as we experience it is the world um i don't mean that the world as you experience it is exclusively the world or that the world can be described by the set of just all my personal perceptions but that human perception human experience as a thing is what the world is made out of so you know we're talking here about the sum total of all human ways of experiencing the world um, and then I would add that, you know, one one can include in that our non, our extrasensory perceptions, to use a kind of loaded term. That is, um, we have all kinds of experiences in the world that are um, more than merely physical. In fact, I would argue that every experience is, is more than merely physical, at least once we begin to um, perceive as adults. You know, like even just when you say, oh, I see a table in front of me. Um, you think that what you're saying is like I see a heap of matter with that meets a certain description. Um, but you're actually making reference to a whole host series of concepts, things like square, the the shape of the table, um table itself, right? The idea of what the table is for. Um those are all things that are nowhere, strictly speaking, to be found in the physical world. Um and so one reason that I have for wanting to make the world as experienced by humans into the world. Um, is that it puts our non or post sensory, our supernatural experiences on a certain par with our directly sensory experiences that Mm -hmm. the color brown, um, which I think we could all whatever your epistemology, we could all agree that the color brown exists. the the color brown is, is best described as a qualitative human experience. It's not actually best described as a particular wavelength of, of light um, because that wavelength at, under some circumstances might not produce the color brown. Mm-hmm. And also the motion of photons or electromagnetic rays um, doesn't actually do anything to account for the quality of, of the color brown. So anytime you talk about anything real, you're talking about a thing as mediated through human consciousness human perception human experience mm. um now you're, so, you're shaky. Right. so
1: shaky right if, you so shaky if we can't quantify it then mm. you get lost in that whole qualia phenomenology yeah that's totally true that's i mean um, th- things get wiggly here
0: this is why like primary qualities was a very attractive idea for a long time right i mean this is the whole um the primary qualities? Scientific. Is this
1: a Plutonic uh, extrapolation? Okay, so
0: this is something that, not, this is like kind of a, a little tidbit. Primary qualities is a, is a Galilean invention. Okay. Um, and we, we don't really think of it that way, but Galileo was the first person to draw the distinction between primary and secondary qualities. It gets picked up by Descartes. It's very much in favor and vogue in the kind of uh, 18th century, 16th century science. And it's basically the distinction between things you can count and things you can't um the four kind of canonical primary qualities Let's see if I, if I can get this right are um position extension mass um and uh and and Volume shape density. or density and there's yeah. different there's different lists of them but there's, there's kind of the four things that you think we think at this time in history we think we can just nail down as attributes of the thing in itself yeah okay and, yeah and that when we turn our backs, they're still there, right? That's And, and so this is why, and Galileo says, the secondary qualities, color, uh, sound, beauty. texture, okay. smell, right? Smell is a good one. Um, these are, he says, mere names without a mind to perceive them. But the primary qualities are real. And one reason why I'm so interested in quantum physics is that, unfortunately, it doesn't quite turn out that way. <laughs> uh, it turns out that even position in space uh, is is a feature of of human perception. It's a feature of objects as perceived by humans. Um, And it's only through sensory perception of them that we attribute position in space to them. Now, by corroborating different experiences of space, we can develop a standard language for talking about and expecting where something's going to be. But this is actually, you know, there are two thinkers, a bit of a tangent, but it may interest you. You There there are two thinkers that have really... um, won me over in the in recent years that I used to hate that i when I read them in college i just I just thought were I would reacted very violently against them for exactly the reason you're describing, which is that they seem so squishy to me and they seem to be denying kind of the, the objective reality of things um and and the first and foremost one is is uh, Bishop Berkeley, who okay. is known for his idealism for saying everything is ideas. There's no matter. there's just ideas and People in Barclay's time, and, and I, when I first read Barclay, reacted very strongly against this because it sounds as if he's saying there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, that we can just kind of create reality by wishing it into being. Yeah. Um, now that I've read a lot of like contemporary science and philosophy of science from Barclay's era, I've started to realize that what he's really saying, I think, is that matter, the concept of matter, as a purely inert kind of non-qualitative mind independent thing that just sits there like a lump of stuff when we're not looking at it is actually a, an innovation an invention of Barclay's time and totally incoherent as a concept that it sort of falls apart in your hands when you start to start to handle it mm-hmm. um and and this i think is like you know the reason i'm writing a book about this right now is because i just, i think it's like the hardest thing to kind of think your way out of it's so um, it surrounds us so so entirely. This notion that if we can number something, then we can kind of attribute it to things in themselves. And if we can't number it, then we can attribute it purely and exclusively to our um, arbitrary sort of fantastical perception. Um And my case is basically that neither of those categories stands as cut and dry as as Galileo wanted them to. Okay. Um, it's not that science and numbers are arbitrary or that we can just make them up. Uh, it's that they don't sort of sit outside of our minds um, with this kind of uh, fundamental reality that things like color and love don't have.
1: Yeah. And the second thinker? So there's Berkeley. Oh, yeah
0: the other one is hume david hume um with whom i still have a lot of disagreements but hume's whole thing is about causality and he's famous for sort of going banging on endlessly about billiard balls and saying that you know if you if you knock a billiard ball across a table um every time it happens the billiard ball that it makes contact with every time you've ever seen this happen the billiard ball that it makes contact with moves across the table under the impulse of that of that force um, and this leads us to attribute to the billiard ball something called force and something called causality um, which we imagine to have a kind of independent existence abstracted away from instances of billiard balls knocking one another on the table um, and in fact says hume we have no grounds for believing this all we actually have is a series of experiences um, mm-hmm. from which we yeah. um Right, from which we infer a kind of universal law. Um, And for Hume, kind of all universal laws just are the aggregate of unbroken experience. And insofar as we have any certainty about them, we have this certainty. Now, the thing that I still reject about Hume is that he goes on from this to insist that therefore nothing ever happens that breaks the laws of nature because if we can be certain about, if we want to be certain about the laws of nature, we have to say that nothing contradicts the universal experience of mankind. And so things like miracles, which do contradict it, aren't admissible for him as reports because uh, the the weight of our experience militates against them. Okay. Um, but what I what I love about it is just like this idea that force is kind of fake, right? That we think that by talking about forces moving in the world, we've reduced the world to to material entities um but but a force is not a material entity you draw it in your head with a little red arrow so that it looks like a physical thing um but it's really just a description of of the sum total of human experience um hmm. and so even in science we're never really talking in, in purely materialist terms we're always making reference to like super super physical
1: or extra-physical yeah. categories and how does how does your faith lend clarity to your understanding of science where does where does the book of scripture interact with the book of nature through your studies in your life
0: well it's interesting you know my uh approach to faith my entry into faith was uh, much more sort of experiential than rational and i know people who have argued themselves into christian belief and uh their arguments seem very sound to me and i would never kind of question the sincerity of their conversion uh but Anybody who has been, who really has thought seriously about these matters at all, but certainly anybody that, that has a faith practice will know that your face-to-face encounter with God, your experience of the divine, and your kind of rational theological account of God um, don't always keep pace with one another. They outstrip one another at various points in your life, and at some times you may be having a very fruitful and emotionally alive series of religious experiences that you can't account for very well. And at other periods or seasons in your life, you might be really rigorously developing a theological account of those experiences uh, that feels kind of dry and passionless to you in the moment because the spirit's just not on fire with you at the time. And so Mm -hmm. um, initially what my faith did for me, my first, what I consider my first ever, you know awareness and encounter of the risen word in in Jesus Christ um was to take us right back to the beginning of our of our conversation to ins- to establish in me a simultaneous and identical sense of my utter uh helplessness and my utter consequence um that i hmm. knew suddenly with kind of irrevocable certainty that um the cosmic the, the the cosmic monarch the king of the universe took a profound interest in me what i would later come to describe as like cared enough about me to die for me um and also i personally um had none of the resources on my own to live up to that um and those were very kind of difficult but beautiful realizations for me as somebody who up until that point, I was about 16. Up until that point, I had been quite competent, you know, good student uh, and used to doing things myself. Um, and the very first thing that happened in my Life of Faith was that I lost a lot of my kind of natural capacities and was forced to rely on prayer for like basic motivational problems. Did you get a bad
1: vaccine batch or something?
0: (laughs) I wish. I wish it were uh, naturally explicable. No, I went to college and I just like uh, kind of lost my way, basically. yeah, um, Really badly. And and like um, you know, lying on the floor of my dorm unable to get up at three in the afternoon badly, you know. Um, And
1: was that like I, an ego death, just to put it in uh, terms that you haven't used? Um, you know, since then
0: I've come to describe it as as depression. Um, okay. I, I think I was depressed. Yeah. Um, and I, it was not so in vogue to describe such experiences quite that clinically at the time. And I still resist a kind of, you know, reductively chemical description of it, but... It had a lot of the features of depression, just kind of a listlessness and a um, a sense of pointlessness, but also a kind of itch to do something, but an inability to do it. Um, and it boiled down to like a need to pray or the res- resilience and resolve to like brush my teeth in the morning. Like, you know, basic human tasks were beyond my ability, unless I asked for help and then help immediately came. And so I had this very direct sense of myself in the world. Um, and I I think that um, as I've become, you know, more theologically educated than I then was, and as I have developed kind of my academic interests, the way in which my faith serves as a guiding light to basically any, you know, abstract Uh, proposition that I'm toying with, be it scientific or, you know, I write about politics, too. And um, all of that stuff for me always comes back to um, the people are the point and also the people suck. Um, And I think that like that um, imago dei kind of dualism that we were talking about is definitely like a limiting factor on my utopianism and a guiding principle in my just general kind of like anthropology
1: so the people are the point and the people suck but that that came through realizing that about yourself absolutely first and foremost yeah um
0: yeah and i have no like good argument to demonstrate that like you suck (laughs) i i know that you are the point Um, And that definitely changes all of my interactions, you know, that like, um, and has really affected my career sort of in media or whatever is like, you're always talking to people and it's their lives that kind of matter urgently. Um, But, you know, I'm not as much one, some some theologians are very into kind of convicting you of your own personal, I, I mentioned, you know, the sinner in the hands of an angry God sermon where you kind of, are supposed to listen and think, yes, like, I really am content. I really do stand content. Um, and I guess my feeling is just like, well, I suspect that there's, like, demons in your inner life the way that there are in, in mine, but I can't really describe them to you or wouldn't want to, you know, unless it was, like, over a beer, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, but but I think that, like, as a general anthropological principle, uh, the people suck generalized out from me is a good reason never to really get too confident about like you know soviet futurism or the bright visions of of like a socialist utopia yeah okay um, that sort of thing
1: yeah um yeah or the wef like you know what they, mm-hmm. they're gonna try with all their might to rule the world but they kind of suck so you know the peter yeah, principle is yeah. gonna save us in the end thanks kamala <laughs> thanks joe um
0: <laughs> exactly exactly yeah yeah
1: there what is, is tawdry it? tawdry could you just use that word uh, in a sentence so I know what the what you're referring oh, to? Like um, shabby. So, like a okay. she walked into the room
0: wearing a tawdry, you know, golden yeah. necklace. Garish. Okay.
1: Tawdry. Yeah. There's um your your brief hints at your spiritual life, for your spiritual development, your biography, your spiritual biography. Um, echo a lot with with mine. Um, having um lost my way, um, lost meaning or will, um, in, in my uh, college years. And then, and then going through a series of ego deaths, uh, after I kind of found my path. Um, when I was 10, I think nine or 10, I went to a uh, summer camp for it. It's a Pentecostal summer camp for assemblies of God. This was in 1986, I think 85, 86. And, uh, I, we had a bunch of worships, uh, you know, we did a bunch of activities. And then one night at worship, I was, you know, going along and singing along. And then I felt like overwhelmed by this incredible, infinite sense of personal love and infinite love. Like, so universal and personal love. And, um, one way that that was encapsulated for me that I can make sense of that. And that took it from like this really overwhelming feeling and kind of allowed it to become emotional and then allowed it to become something that my mind could grasp with was the story of Jesus dying for me. Now, since Mm -hmm. then I I have, I, I, I am more plastic with that. I don't believe that in a strict sense, but I understand that that has a very profound meaning uh, or ability to translate a sense of of bridging the sense of of unimportance and and supreme importance that you're talking about i'm wondering if if you could extrapolate on the power of that not as a reality but as a as a symbol um that makes life theology god nature meaningful to you or or how you've seen that play out in your historical Investigations that Jesus died for you.
0: Yeah. Um, well, there is a kind of uh, inconvenient snag here for me, which is the, um, you know, Christian orthodoxy is quite adamant about the, like, really dying part. And the reason for this has to do with the actual bodily resurrection and the necessity of incorporating that in order to give to offer the kind of hope, the kind of eschatological hope that uh that Christians have. Um, so, you know, for for me, there is an essential element of no, like, you know, his body. There is a there's a John Updike poem about this that like it really was you know, the heart in his chest that started beating. It's not a metaphor. It's not like a an image, whatever. Um, and St. Paul has this whole thing about, you know, um, unless Christ is, is risen, we are the, the kind of most uh, pitiable creatures because we're waiting for something that's just not gonna happen. We're just not gonna come back to life at the end. Huh. Um, so all of that having been said, I think the way that I would personally phrase it for, you know, to describe my own attitude about this is that, um, the things that happened in the Gospel really did happen, um but things which really happen are not just things that happen <laughs> uh, that they that that the most profound and significant historical events um also have cosmic significance and embody and enact principles, especially when it comes to do with god's action yeah. um that are to be found elsewhere um and so uh I would say you know. It, it's it's actually really, what it really is, is a question of um, priority and direction. So if if we say of the resurrection that it embodies a kind of principle in the world, um, we can see all sorts of ways in which that principle might ring true, right? That, that God um, cares so deeply for his children that he's willing to take upon him. The consequence of our um, wrongdoing, of all of our inadequacies, to meet us at the infinite distance yeah. from him, um, and we can see the way in which, for instance, like as far as I'm concerned, this is the best metaphor, if it, you know, if it were a metaphor. If I believed it were a metaphor, I would say this is the world's best metaphor for forgiveness, um, because you know, in, in Greek there are two words for for forgiving. Yeah. One is. Uh, the kind of classical word that you find in like Aristotle and um, the the you know and, and the classical philosophers who say things like sungignomi or um and that means like I recognize along with you. It means I understand what you did. That's what the verb gignosco means. Uh, and so you can forgive somebody if you kind of get oh I see why you did that. Yeah. Um, but the Gospels use do not use that word ever that I'm aware of. Um, They use a different word, which is aphiemi. And aphiemi in in Greek means to cast away or to to, to throw away from oneself. Um, As far as the East is from the West, so far has he said our sins from us. And what's interesting to me about that is that you can actually perform aphesis is the noun form. You can perform that kind of forgiveness without understanding why somebody did what they did maybe there's no good explanation in fact maybe it simply was wrong and malicious um maybe for instance you know you were abandoned by a lover and that person just did what he wanted instead of um what was right and to perform forgiveness in that context um, which does not entail you know getting back together with the person or even cultivating a relationship with the person hmm. um, but to set that wrongdoing at no account um is an intensely painful act of renunciation it's not fair it doesn't always feel good and yet it is the only way to live we know this or at least i feel i've experienced this again and again in my life um and i i think of this also in terms of like When people get into conversations about reparations at a national level, um, that if we can just give the money back to the descendants of the slaves, then, you know, we'll make good for um, all the things that we've done wrong. And the problem with this, of course, is that it involves us in this endless keeping of accounts and the way out of that keeping of accounts. In our personal lives or in our politics is only ever Ephesus is simply to put make an end. This is what Lincoln said at the end of the war. Let us now that we've, you know, spilled all our blood. Uh, now that we've had this terrible reckoning, um, we must immediately begin to bind up our wounds and and leave this Jesus. dark yeah. past behind us. Um, yeah, all this is simply to say, you know, Ephesus is a kind of death. It's also the only way to live. So, if the if the resurrection is. Uh, you know, were a metaphor for that. It would be a perfect metaphor. Um, when Christ is on the cross in Luke's gospel, and he says, "I give up the spirit." When 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 Luke says he gave up the spirit, um, the word for giving up is afiemi. He he lets it go. So even just casting out your very soul from your body is represented in the gospels as a, as an act of crucifixion and death
1: of uh, um, absolute surrender.
0: Absolute surrender, total um, meekness. Uh, in the face of unjust persecution. Yeah. Now, uh, the last little thing for me to say about this is, is the cross a metaphor for uh, forgiveness, or is forgiveness a metaphor for the cross? Uh, that is, when we do an experience offenses, are we encountering spiritually an inkling of something that will happen fundamentally, metaphysically, and physically to the whole world at the end of days, when we on our own two feet with our own two eyes, rise again and see God, or um, is that not going to happen? But it's a nice picture of the sort of thing that we should do in forgiveness. That's the question of whether the resurrection really happened. Just to just to kind of put put the finger on yeah. uh, what the difference for me is there.
1: Um, to back from the theological into our favorite domain, which is the political, mm-hmm. of course. Okay. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was speaking earlier today with Zee Von Fleet, who is an immigrant from China to America. She moved here in 86. She was born in the 50s. She went through the entire Cultural Revolution. And she tells me uh, her point of view and the history of the Cultural Revolution in China and then says that's what's happening here. Um, hmm. makes, makes parallels with, um, well, ex- explicitly in 2020 with the Color Revolution. Sorry, the Black Lives Matter protests um, and what what just what what's happening with what is called woke um, and she says specifically that that wokeness or what we call wokeness is a is a very refined version of Marxism because Marxism as it took effect or maoism as it took effect in china worked on peasants it worked in a different culture and it worked on people who would never free um she says and i i guess i'm spoiling that interview it's a wonderful interview though but she says that that mao came to power by mobilizing the peasants against the uh the authorities the nationalists instituted the communist party totally screwed up Killed millions of people and then set the kids, the uh, the Red Guard, once again against the um, uh, the capitalist class. So China didn't have. A sense of freedom. America has a sense of freedom. American has a sense of Christianity, of individual forgiveness, of individual um, empathy and caring. And a lot of Chris, there's a lot of Christian Christianity in our culture that has been obscured by just ignorance, plain ignorance and just um, forgetfulness of, of our origin. And that wokeness, um, you're just making me think about this, um, that. Hmm. The, the tools that are being used to divide and conquer us as a people lend on broken notions of the Christian um, cycle of, of sin and reparations or sin and forgiveness. And you, you can see that. And people have said this uh, many times that it's kind of a broken version of Christianity. And when, when I get to the point, like, cause I talk so much about the cultural war, the cultural problems, and I'm always looking, well, what do we do? What do we do? returning to a deeper understanding of what forgiveness is mm. um, and and there are aspects of critical social justice that say no there's no right for you to ask for forgiveness right as a white cis heterosexual man, I have no right to even expect forgiveness that is, absolutely at the hands of those who I've harmed or those who my people have harmed. So it, it cuts out that ability. And if you really study what happens to people who believe this, they get destroyed by it. It destroys them. They go around and burn all the bridges, but they end up destroying each other and then destroying themselves because they get so mired in, in, in sin they are yeah. so mired in judgment, like the struggle yeah. sessions and the critical thinking of themselves and other people. It ends up eating them alive. And I think one of the hopes uh, for our culture and for our nation is to return to the founding principles of that. And whether or not those can be returned to in theological terms, I'm not sure. But those mm-hmm. theological terms have a very, um, they, they certainly have a power of communicating the values and the process forward, the, the way of untying the enemy that that strangulating mm-hmm. our children, that's, that's destroying families that that's allowing power to eat our country alive. Um, that was not a question, but please respond as if
0: were. <laughs> I absolutely will. And it was very, it was very beautifully put in a kind of chilling way, because something that I think conservatives and I, I include myself in that, like hackneyed category, Hmm. I think we are sometimes bad at remembering who we're talking to when we rail against wokeness because it's very satisfying. And sometimes I think even maybe necessary to point up the absurdity of the woke revolution, to mock it, to uh, be angry, to express anger about it, to um, press on its inconsistencies and illogic, all of that is is fine. But ultimately, the people that we're trying to reach are the scared, broken children who have been sold a bill of goods and are, whose souls are now being like squeezed in the vice grip of this disgusting and anti-human ideology. And so hmm. I think I could, and we as conservatives could do a better job genuinely reaching out to people in terms of their own flourishing. As you just said, the way that this sucks leeches the soul dry is apparent is manifest is one of those like irreducible qualitative human experiences to which appeal is, is very powerful. And, uh, you know, I I would also say that the reason wokeness, by contrast, is so attractive initially and so insidious in its attractiveness is because it exactly, as you said, it trades on shards of Christian truth. It offers facts, moral facts about the world that acknowledge the seriousness of our position in the cosmos. For instance, we are born into the world Saddled with a history of brokenness, all of us, one way or another, whether it benefits us or or hurts us, and probably yeah. it does both in different ways. Um, we do get threaded at birth into this enormous tapestry of wrongdoing, and we, and and the you know each of these truths, as presented by wokeness, comes um, with a crucial part missing. And so in Christianity, when you're told of original sin or if you're rightly taught about original sin, what, 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 you're, what you're told is, yes, you do from your mother's womb as you are knit together. You inherit a, a, an entire human history of uh, wrong turns and shortcomings and, and, and failures and tragedy. And you know what? If you had been Adam in the garden, you would have made the same choice. As Adam did. And so you are somehow even implicated in this Hmm. tragedy by by birth. And this is a a horrible sorrow. This is like a terrible thing. But, and there's no way out, which is why God in his mercy has made one. And the route is not backwards in untangling these knots, but Hmm. forwards in offering forgiveness. And so to, to impress upon a young person The whole weight of that moral reality of original sin, which is what wokeness does, um, without cleaving open the door, the path forward that God in Christ has 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 cleaved is a satanic act. It is literally a diabolical thing to do um, because it traps people in the consequences of their humanity and their their brokenness. Um, And so you're absolutely right. You know, forgiveness of the really kind of deep kind that is morally serious that acknowledges the reality of wrong um but that nevertheless you know releases people from the endless keeping of accounts um which will kill us all um and after which no one will be left standing um is definitely it's the most needful thing i i suspect in our politics and it it's so obviously, I mean, it's one reason why I'm very wary of, you know, oh, so um, this guy has repented of, of his wokeness and now he's coming to us in, you know, asking for forgiveness, but it's too little too late. It's like, that's just us playing the woke game, you know, we we ought to be, and I think at our best we are, you know, the place where people... Uh, come and receive healing, and this is why, for instance, the detransitioner movement is just really moving to me. Because here are people who have been chewed up, literally, in the maw of this uh, of this kind of satanic movement, yeah. um, who have the courage to. Recognize this is what we would call. I. I. I'm going to use this term advisedly uh, and gloss it. You know, this it's a form of repentance, um, not because they've done something wrong, by you know, they were vulnerable children, they were taken advantage of and used by a system. Um, but the Greek word that repentance translates is is metanoia. It's it's a reconsideration, a shifting of the way you view the world, um, and so. Repentance is followed by forgiveness because only repentance can seek forgiveness. And both of those concepts are so much bigger than like, yeah. I did a bad thing and daddy's gonna scold me unless I really put on the hair shirt and whatever, like perform this act yeah. of public um, self excoriation. Like, no, no, we are talking about restorative, actual restorative justice. Like, the, and, and and that is why people like, you know, Chloe Cole or whoever just become these beacons of moral, uh, of 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 moral Hmm. righteousness because they you know embody the the possibility that you you're actually not done for just because you've been uh taken advantage of by an evil system
1: yeah uh i this is just a question you don't have to answer it it might not even be a good question uh or uh salient question but um how does worship what does it do for you what does worship do for you, insofar as worship is a uh, part of your belief system, your belief?
0: Uh, yeah, worship is. I I hope and and try for worship to be the center and the constant of my life. It, you know and and if if you like at some point we could get into specifics about like what that looks like it does mean it means going to church on sunday yeah. it means praying every morning it means reading the bible every morning it means all that okay. stuff yeah. um but
1: what's what the I think, content I, think that I guess the content of just the act and then the meaning afterwards like when you read the bible when you pray in the morning when you go to church like is there a content can you express the what's inside of doing those things
0: uh yes i i think so um so The Bible says, the Psalms say, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And um, for a long time, I read that passage and I just thought, well, that means atheists are dumb, right? It's like a dig at atheists. And that never quite sat well with me, not only because it's sort of petty, but also because I don't actually find atheists to be all that dumb. Some of them as far as I can tell, are very intelligent and which yeah. sort of all about as foolish as everybody else. Um, and, and gradually, I think I've come to realize, and this is consistent with kind of the rest of the attitude of the Hebrew scriptures, what that really means is if you tell yourself you don't have a God, you have made yourself a fool. You're kidding yourself if you think you don't already worship because something occupies the position of highest good in your life. Um, even if you don't Think of it that way your actions always imply some aim some goal getting up at bed in the morning drinking coffee going to work you do them you know if you keep asking yourself that toddler's question why why am i doing this eventually you're going to end up at like well because i want money or luxury or power or whatever and if there's nothing beyond that like that's your god you've met your god congratulations and if you tell yourself that you don't have that in your life you have all you've done is blind yourself to your true nature um, and so this is a long way of saying what worship does offers in my life is self-awareness. Um, the first question of worship is not, will I place something in that highest position, but what or who is worthy of being placed in that highest position? Um, what if I put it there will set me free rather than further enslaving and chaining me to some desire or, or aspiration? Um, and it's my conviction that the God of the Bible, as revealed in the history of the Jews um, in the Hebrew Scriptures and the person of Jesus in the Gospels, um, is is the person that merits that position in, in life. Um, and so all the attributes that we ascribe to God, both from Scripture and also from reason, as we described earlier, um, are attempts to rightly um, describe the person that should be on that throne. And this can come certainly from reading stories about what he was like and what he did, and what he does still. Um, it can come from recalling before God, confessing before God, things that he has done in your life. That's kind of a classic mm-hmm. mode of of prayer. Um, for me, increasingly, it can also come uh, simply from attempting to uh, clear away all the other claims upon your consciousness, which otherwise constantly dominate you. Uh, and this is a form of Christian meditation or lectio divina. Um, yeah. That means, like, attempt the practice of the presence of God is another kind of slightly more woo way of describing this. Like, um, for me, it takes the form of of simply kneeling um, in in breath and invitation. And the the Lord's Prayer is a great way to sort of start this, right? Our Father, if you notice about the Lord's Prayer, that it begins um, with just a a request that God should be God, right? That that, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? each of these things, if God is really God, it, it's going to happen. There's nothing that you can do to make it happen or stop it from happening, um, and so it must be that the opening of that prayer is like a gateway to aligning your will with with who God is, right? Um, so worship for me is is first of all making myself aware that I am uh, elevating something. Um, Performing, if you like, a searching moral inventory to see what else might be occupying that position, yeah. um, and then asking, inviting God to occupy that space. Um, and once you've done that informal prayer, taking that logic and and hoping that it will retain remain the governing principle of all your actions. So mm. once you've sort of said that in the abstract, said it in prayer, then you sit down. You're going to write an essay. Um, it means concretely practically that if that essay is going to be an act of worship, you're not just gonna write whatever's gonna make you look smartest. You're not just gonna write whatever you, you know, think is going to get you in the best publication or get the most clicks. Um ideally you're you're gonna write the thing um that honors God and serves your neighbor. Um and so it, you know, you can extrapolate this into any number of other practices, but yeah, I think ultimately like, you know, once you've done worship rightly as a form of prayer. You're then doing worship all the time, everywhere, whatever you do.
1: Yeah. So you have, uh, your book coming up. Well, you know, you you submitted in December. Um, that's the big, that's kind of like the big through line. What, what's, uh, like just on the lay of the land, like with your interacting with just current events and stuff like that. Do you see anything developing? You said that you're on the conservative in the conservative position, is there anything promising uh, or, or any changes that you see going on um, either, either for good or for ill? Um, like this things that, that are drawing your attention that, that are of concern or of, of promise or excitement for you. Yeah.
0: Um, there's a lot going on actually. And it's funny because summer is kind of known in politics as the silly season and there's not that much that happens. And we kind of elevate these, Dom, like, you know, Coke in the White House, like that's kind of the big story. Um, and yet this summer for me feels very pregnant politically um, and pregnant in all sorts of ways. Like, I, I I feel a lot of promise and a lot of peril at once. Um, obviously, the kind of headline item of this on everybody's horizon who follows politics is the presidential election. And... There's kind of like a doomerism that I that I perceive on the right a little bit now where that, you know, first of all, mail-in ballots are so extreme and, and vulnerable to corruption. And, you know, the immigration situation is so bad and kind of like the Democrat turnout machine is so powerful and they'll never, ever, ever let Trump win. So, like, when will a Republican ever be president again? Like, that's kind of the the case for doomerism. Um. And i will confess that i kind of don't feel i feel a little bit like at a loss when i look at the the republican presidential field yeah. um de hasn't hasn't proven as likable as i hoped he would and, and that's more of a problem than uh i thought it would be um so all of that is kind of to me it's perplexing i think there's like more time left to go in the race like there's some some developments that could still transpire and uh, I'm not. I haven't lost hope, but I'm also sort of. I'm not sure where to look for hope in in the presidential election. But at, by the same token, um, at a local and at a cultural level, it seems as if there is a, a kind of enormous energy and momentum brewing. Um, not just like you know, with the trans stuff. It seems like uh, when when Target put that uh, Tuckett swimsuit in its stores, when Bud Light had dylan mulvaney uh with with cans with his face on it um there was suddenly just this kind of to me really like spirited energy not just among like people like me who are terminally online yeah. and have like a political philosophy but like just people normal people who were like no you know and 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 that i just i i really to me that's my favorite american sort of moment is huh. just like. Everybody, without necessarily a governing thesis or like a theory of the case, is just sort of like, okay, the nations of Europe are going to form a grand strategy for taking over the world and you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. But, like, that sounds really lame and also, no. So, like, <laughs> that, that's, like what if that sucks, you know? Um, I, like, I really, um, I put a lot of my, like, hope in that mm. kind of American spirit and I see a lot yeah. of it. I even see this whole Jason Aldean thing where it's just, like, guy writes this country music song about yeah. how you shouldn't punch old ladies in the face and <laughs> and, like the the gatekeepers of country music are like this is offensive and this is racist. Wait, what? Yeah, it's racist. Wait,
1: only like, only black you people punch <laughs> people in the face. What? What that are you saying? Yeah, exactly. It's
0: like there's what? so many layers of like Yeah. Or or even it's like, you know, conservatives speak out against come up with this thing about grooming. Yeah, you or know, child trafficking you're, you're, you're with the yeah, that movie that child trafficking, right. And and suddenly the like alphabet soup left is like that's homophobic it's like is it is that is 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 pedoph is like being against pedophilia homophobic like that's the only people i've ever heard take that position are like you know 1980s right wingers who didn't want gay people to teach kids in schools it's like is that what the left believes and and i genuinely feel like most people are like what if that is like you're 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 an idiot like what do you what are you talking about and so i just like you know i i feel a lot of um energy there and i want to kind of encourage that um because i sort of feel as if even if we get a presidential outcome that we're happy about um that's not quite going to fix it like we're at the end of something in american life we're at the end of like you know boomer dominance we're at the end of um the post-Cold War, American hegemony. We're at the end of um, sort of the sexual revolution and and its various excesses. And we do have to kind of make something new now. And I see the people out there doing it, like people that are not, again, like, you know, Mary Harrington is like one of my favorite writers out there. And I would never call her like a, you know, rock-ribbed, Bible-thumping conservative, like, yeah, you, But yeah. but this is somebody that definitely counts to me as like, on the team, um, it's just that the team is like way more diffuse and guerrilla and interesting than yeah. it has yeah. ever been. At least in my lifetime,
1: yeah. Um, are are you? Do you find where, where are you in the mix with uh, journaling that or adding to the conversation? Do you do you think?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, I I hope oh. that my contribution will be cultural and spiritual. I mean, we've talked a lot today about my personal baby, which is like uh, the kind of intersection of the way I would describe my my main concern is like theology as if it were real life. Like I, I am not interested at all in slogans or platitudes, but I also think the slogans and the platitudes are true. I think the dogma is true. Hmm. And so I'm like interested in um, making that real in the world we actually live in for people. And one reason, one of my reasons, for being interested in science is that like science is an attempt to describe the real world and many scientists now are doing what in older better days would have been called natural theology or natural philosophy and i feel as if the church capital c has kind of absconded from that out of fear that like it belongs to atheists and so one intervention i'm hoping to make is is that is like no no let us actually talk about the latest and greatest discoveries of the human mind yeah. as if they are embodiments of of faith. Um, and then the other thing is 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 art. Like, I'm not a, an artist myself, um, but I've grown up around artists, and I think I'm a pretty good critic. I think I'm a good book okay. reviewer and, and movie reviewer. Um, and I think that the right, although it is becoming more aware of the importance of the culture, um, can still be pretty square and stiff about art. And I would like to um bridge the gap between like knowing that culture matters and actually doing good culture
1: yeah yeah, um, yeah 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 and uh being not the gatekeeper what's the other guy the curator
0: kind of curators great curator, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah love
1: that and where can people yeah. where Where do you where Where does your writing usually pop up um
0: I'm often in the Claremont review of books I've got a, an essay coming out in the next issue and there's a lot of uh we, we published this at the at the Claremont Institute um so I do essays and book reviews there. The American Mind is another publication, and I'm roundabout. I'm at um, Law and Liberty and, and Federalist uh, a fair bit from time to time. And then um, I also oh, I have a Substack. I should say I, it, it, it's kind of just a newsletter, but I I write on on Fridays at RejoiceEvermore.substack.com. Huh.
1: What's that? Um, uh, what, what's the themes on on your Substack? Rejoice Evermore. Um, it's
0: the two things we just discussed. It's like cultural cultural criticism and sort of theological commentary. Yeah. Um, hooked to, you know, the very online real world. Um, and so that's every Friday. And that's also how people can uh, write me with questions for my podcast. So I have oh, this podcast cool. called Young Heretics, which is like uh, just a kind of fun, rip-roaring tour through the Western canon we do. Right now we're doing a series on the on the um, Cardinal Virtues. And I do a mail-by question at the end of each one. And it's I take that from the sub-stack from people that write in and um, Get in touch with me
1: that way. Great. Thanks for coming back on. I'm sorry about our first interview and how I bungled it with the technology this month. <laughs> it's totally fine. fine. So your it grace is sufficient anytime. for me. So thank you so much. <laughs> 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 thank you. Anytime. Truly. Thank All right, Spencer. No. In the recording.
0: All right. Thanks a lot.